You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We have so much to do today that I don't really have time to ease in to this. This generation is being forced to answer some incredibly weighty questions. Well, one that comes to mind is, what are we going to do when our daughters are forced to share locker rooms with boys? How about this one? How can we as Christians work toward the good goals of liberty and justice for all without falling prey to the ungodly worldview of things like Marxism and critical race theory and the gross immorality trumpeted by so many on the left and the racism and the materialism and the disregard for suffering present so often on the right. And... How can we fulfill this mandate given to us by our Christ that we would be salt and light in a world that seems absolutely to hate the light and has lost all taste for the salt of kindness and goodness and truth and self-control? Here's another pressing question that the culture keeps forcing us to answer, and that is, what is love anyway? What is it? Is it, is it a commitment never to hurt anyone's feelings? Is it a commitment to always affirm someone there in their desires? Is, is love basically just an erotic attraction and expression with the goal of people being free to express that love with whomever they wish? Is it, is it merely an agreement? Where I am really into you, only as long as I'm into you being into me. Today we begin a study of the book of Hosea. And we're going to encounter questions that that aren't going to seem nearly as pressing as these. But I want to remind you that, that there are questions under the questions. And it's those questions that are under these questions that are even more important for us to answer. Like, who is God? Who am I? How am I going to respond to this God? What am I going to do when my will encounters His will? Is it going to be a... Or is it going to be a... Open your Bible with me, if you will, to Hosea chapter 1. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll be in Psalms. Proverbs, go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and you'll find the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 
the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are gathered here as mortals, seeking to hear from God Almighty. We pray that you would speak, that you would give me grace to speak forth your word with clarity. And Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and and hearts, wills that are eager to come under your authority. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray you'd open our eyes that we might see Jesus. And we would respond to him. Joyful, grateful, submissive, loving obedience. I pray this in his name. Amen. This morning, I'm going to attempt to tackle two goals. First, I want to introduce the whole book of the book of Isaiah. And then, specifically, I want to begin to help us to understand these first five verses. I'm going to organize our time around five main themes. First, the prophet, the picture, the problem, the promise. And then finally, the pressing question. So so again, if you're taking notes, the prophet, the picture, the problem, the promise, and the pressing question. First, the prophet. Since this is a new book we're beginning to study, let me begin with a, a quick history review and a few basic facts that will help us not just today, but in the weeks to come as we seek to understand this book. If you went home, and again, I hope you write this down, and you read, it would be very helpful if you would take your family through 2 Kings 15 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 26 through 32. I will give you a glimpse into the political and social and religious culture that Hosea is speaking into. Let me just summarize it very quickly for you, and it is this. It ain't pretty. Hosea is speaking into a mess. And I'll just, I'll just tell you, just as another side note, that the more you read through this book, as we're preaching through this book, the more you will get out of our study together. 
Let's begin with a quick review of Israel's history. And, and for this, I would like it if as many children as possible could answer these questions. And if the children can't get it, then big people can chime in. So first question is this. Who is the father? This may be a harder one. The other ones will be easier. But who is the father of the, of the nation of Israel? I'll give you a hint. Genesis chapter 12. Somebody yell it out. Abraham. That's right. And Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac. Isaac had two children, and their names were Jacob and Esau. God changed Jacob's name, and he made his name what? Israel. They ended up, Israel then had how many sons? Twelve sons. And Israel and all of his twelve sons end up as slaves in Egypt. But God saved them and brought them out into the land that he had promised Abraham. This land was divided. Basically, it's not quite this simple. But basically, the land was divided almost like states into these twelve different tribes. Each for each of the twelve sons of Jacob. And in this land, God ruled them by a means of a set of rules or a set of laws that were summarized by ten big rules and the name of those rules are the Ten Commandments. Who said that? That's right, the Ten Commandments. In addition, in entering these land, they were supposed to drive out all the wicked nations that were living in the land. But what we see is that instead of driving out the wicked nations, Israel actually compromised and began to mix in with these nations and began to take on a lot of their practices, namely the practice of worshiping other gods. Once in the land, Israel looked around. They saw all the other nations. And they said, look, God, all these nations have a king. And we want a king just like them. And so God gave them a king. And what was the name of the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul made a big mess of it, so God raised up another king, the most famous king of Israel, and his name was David. David had a son who was given the throne after him. And what was the son's name? Solomon. What was Solomon known for? What was the good thing Solomon was known for? His wisdom. But I want to show you what happened uh, at the end of Solomon's life. Look back. Keep your place in Hosea. And look back to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings 11. First Kings 11, chapter 1, I mean, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonianite, and Hittite women. And from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon had held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after, after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, for, for Molech and detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but that he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Here's what God did. He divided the nation of Israel into two. The ten northern tribes became known as the nation of Israel. Sometimes those northern tribes are called Samaria because that's the capital. Sometimes they're called Ephraim because that's the largest tribe. Other times they're just called Israel. We, we see all of these in, in one place. You can just write down Hosea 10.6 where all of these are used. It's very important. Sometimes in the book of Hosea he's going to address Israel and sometimes Ephraim and sometimes he's going to address Samaria. But he's addressing these ten northern tribes. So when, when these ten northern tribes broke off, they were ruled by kings who were not directly related to David. Meanwhile, there were two tribes to the south, and they came to be known as Judah, their most prominent tribe, and the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. Now, just to make this a little bit more confusing, let me just point out that sometimes when the Bible speaks of Israel, it speaks of those ten northern tribes, and sometimes it's speaking of all twelve tribes, the whole nation of Israel. So, but, you with me so far? Okay. Now, look at verse 1, and let's meet this prophet, Hosea. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Let me tell you everything there is that the Bible says about this man, Hosea. That's it. That's all he says. The only time he uses the, the name, this, this man, Hosea, is here and in verse 2. It's the only thing we know about him. There are several other people who are named Hosea, but this prophet only mentioned here, and it seems to be the reason why he says this is Hosea, not all the other Hoseas. This is Hosea, the son of Berea. Verse 1 actually gives us a lot of information, though. First, I don't want you to miss this, but notice that, that what we're speaking, when we, when we read this, this book, we are actually reading, hearing from the very mouthpiece of God. When we read the words of Hosea the prophet, we are reading the very words of the living God. How do you know that? Because that's what verse 1 says. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea. When we gather here on Sunday morning, the goal is not for you to hear about the opinions of Jonathan Foster or Tommy Hullett. 
The opinions of Jonathan Foster and Tommy Hullett have absolutely almost no meaning whatsoever. You really don't need to know what Tommy Hullett or Jonathan Foster says. What we gather to do here, and this is how I want you to pray for us, that when we stand here to preach, that we would not be preaching the opinion of Tommy Hullett or Jonathan Foster or Josh Kappas or Chris Griffin or whoever else is preaching, but that we would open up the Word of God and we would declare to you the very words of the living God. You don't need to hear from us. But you very much need to hear from Him. This is the word of the Lord which came to Hosea. I tell you this, Israel and Judah very quickly learned that this word was the word of God because everything that Hosea said would happen is exactly what did happen. The second thing we need to learn about Hosea from verse 1 is when Hosea prophesied. Look at verse 1 again. He prophesied during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's the ancient equivalent of giving a set of dates, of pointing to the calendar and saying this is where it was. Uzziah's reign began in 791 B.C., and Hezekiah's reign ended in 686 B.C. Jeroboam's reign, this is the second Jeroboam, his reign began in 793 B.C. and ended in 753 B.C. Now, as we, as we go along, we're going to see that Hosea is fairly unique because unlike all the Old Testament prophets except Amos, Hosea's preaching ministry focused on the northern tribes, not on the tribe of Judah. And then finally, the last thing we'll say about Hosea, which I just find interesting, is that Hosea was a preacher. And what we have in the book of Hosea is basically these years of preaching, of sermons, that then Hosea later compiled, or one of his disciples compiled, into this book. We have the book of Hosea. That's the prophet. Now let's examine the picture. If you're familiar at all with the book of Hosea, this is probably the part that you know. The picture that God uses to describe his relationship with Israel is the most famous thing about this book. And I want to just remind you that that's on purpose. That, that God, it's like a wreck on the side of a road with, with police lights flashing and ambulance lights flashing. That as you pass by, you can't help but look at it. That's why God uses this picture. He wants you to look at this train wreck that's just happening here in Israel. Look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of, Dil of Dibalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So much for the sermon's G rating, right? Um, we have children in the room. And Jonathan said exactly right. I want to be sensitive to that. And really, the onus is really on parents to explain these things to your children. But I, I, just, I just want to, to just hopefully be as clear as we can because my goal is there is every person in this room, the smallest child to the oldest adult in this room, needs to hear the message of the book of Hosea. So let me try to make it as clear as I can. If you have the New American Standard, the words harlotry and adultery are going to come up a lot in this book. If you have an ESV, the words are whoredom, whoring, and adultery. Let me try to explain this to children. 
God designed humans to love each other, to live under Him for His glory, to make Him famous, and to take care of His world. God gave lots of gifts to us. I love how Josh started the service. God's given us all kinds of good things. But, but one of the most precious things God gives us is friendship. He gives us relationships with people. And there are, friendship is precious. There are, there are relationships in your life that are really precious. Your relationship with your mama and your daddy is precious. But there is one relationship that is more precious, one friendship that is more valuable and more precious than all other friendships, and that is this friendship between a husband and a wife. God made us, He made humans to be males, to be boys, and to be females, to be girls. And He, and he has designed for one man to marry and have as his best friend for his whole life, one woman. And for in that relationship, for them to know everything about each other, for them to share everything, they get to share a house, they share their money, they share everything. That other, that person there to know everything about each other. They get to share this, this most precious of all friendships. And in marriage you have children, and children are really great, but but, but marriage is special because, take me for example. Now, I can be friends, right? I can be friends with Ben, and I can be friends with Emma, and I can be friends with Bruno, and, and I, can be, I can be friends with Gil. But, but can I be friends with anybody the way I'm a friend with Eve? I'm not to be friends with anybody the way I am friends with Eve. It's a special friendship. It would be wrong. But hear that word. It would be wrong for me to be friends with anybody the way I'm friends with Eve. In fact, two people, when they get married, they promise God. And they promise each other. I'm going to be closest to you. And I'm not going to share this kind of love with anybody else the way I'm going to share it with you. Here's a sad part. People break that promise. Even though they're married, they share very special things. Things that were only meant to be shared between a husband and a wife. They share it with other people. Is that good or bad, children? Bad. It's bad. It is, it's, 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 it's bad. It's so bad we have a word for it. And the word is adultery. It's, it's, it's so bad when we talk about it, we use heavy words like shame. It, it's, it's sad because it destroys friendship in marriage. And when people do it over and over and over again, then the Bible calls that harlotry or whoredom. And, and these words are meant to make you sad. And they're meant to make you mad. Because it's terrible. And when people do this, it makes their wife or husband sadder than you can imagine. It hurts bad. It destroys family that God meant to be wonderful and safe and happy. Therefore, verse 2 is shocking. Verse 2 
says that when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for your wife a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Go and take a wife that's going to go and commit adultery. Go take a wife that's going to go and love lots of other people beside you. Even though she's supposed to just love you, she's going to go love all these other people. For, he says, the land, this nation, commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. God tells a man, a preacher, named Hosea, to marry a woman that God knows is going to hurt Hosea really badly by loving lots of other men. It, it, it would be helpful for you. In fact, the only way to get anything out of this book is for you to do the emotional hard work to try to put yourself in the place of Hosea and imagine the pain and the sorrow, the betrayal that Hosea felt. You got to feel this weight, this pain of what his wife has done to him. And God says, I want my people to know this because this is how they've made me feel. This is what they've done to me. In verse 2, God's people have left him, forsaken him to commit adultery with all these other gods and all these other nations. Just like in marriage, they're supposed to be devoted to him alone, to love him alone, to worship him alone. Which brings us to the problem in the book of Hosea. Again, if you go home and you read what the Bible records about the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Jeroboam in 2 Kings 15-20 to and 2 Chronicles 26-32, to you'll quickly learn that Hosea is speaking in the very dark, very sad times. The, the picture that I have of, of what's going on in Israel in, in this book is like a, a mixture of all of the... the, the the violence of Detroit, Michigan at night, the depravity of Las Vegas, Nevada at night, and the paganism of Boulder, Colorado all rolled into one. Now, now this is a very simple but very helpful exercise that I encourage for you. I, as I was reading through this book, and I wanted to see what exactly is God so hurt by and upset about in the book of Hosea. And I just took a highlighter, and every time he pointed out specific sin, I just highlighted that. I used, I used a brown highlighter, and you can see it's just, it's just full of Israel's sin. Let me just give you a few highlights. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals, that's this other wicked God, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. What's Israel's sin? Worshiping other gods. And by the way, how does God describe that idolatry at the end of verse 13? What's that? She forgot. She forsook the Lord to go commit adultery with all these other gods. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. That sounds a lot like American 2021 to me. Hosea chapter 4, verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult the wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains, and burn incense on the hills, under the oak, poplar, and terbinth. Because the, the sh- their shade is pleasant, therefore your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes so that the people are without understanding and are ruined. Look at, look at verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor is gone. Because they drank it all. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. Anybody see all that's wrong? We need to ask a question. And the question is, why would anybody in their right mind make an idol and bow down to it? Why would people worship other gods and and, and consult astrologists and, and, and psychics and wear good luck charms. Or even, well, why would you take your kids to a fountain and have them make a wish and put money into the fountain? Why, why would anybody who has the Lord as their God, why would they go after all these other gods? Here's the answer to the question. People worship idols and follow the gods because there's something that they want. And they want it without any of these strings any of this authority that God puts on them, I just want what I want when I want it. And God, I don't like your timeline. And I don't like you telling me what to do. I see it and I just want it. And so they go after these other gods because they think these other gods are going to give it to them. That's what's happening in Israel. They're going after the Baals. And, and the Baals, is this is a fertility god. They need rain. Well, let's go for our crops. Let's go pray to Baal. Oh, we want to have children. Let's go pray to Baal. And they're worshiping Baal because they think that he'll give them all of these things. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what it says. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. And she said, I will go after my lovers. Why? Because they give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. You see why they're chasing other gods? I want to show you something really sad. Look down at verse 8. God is speaking and He says, she's going after these other gods for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain the new wine and the oil and lavished her with silver and gold which they used for Baal. Here's the way he says in chapter 14, verse 8. 
from me comes your fruit. And what's so sick is that God is the provider of all these things and they're using these good things that God has provided to go and to worship this wicked God. Now at first glance, the worship of other gods and the... Uh, let, me, let me show you one more thing first. So chapter 7, verse 8. It says Ephraim, and remember, that's just a word for Israel. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. He says in verse 11, So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. In other words, there's, they're, they're concerned about their security, and so they're making these alliances with all these wicked nations. And at first glance, this worship of other gods and the alliances with these sinful nations and this culture of swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery and violence, they don't seem to be connected. But do you see what they all have in common? There's something they want. And they don't trust God to give it to them. He's not working on their timetable. He seems too demanding. So they're going to find another source. That's what sin does. That's what sin always is trying to do in your life. This is what you are so tempted to believe. You have things you want. Well, don't go to God. He's not going to give them to you. That prude. He's, no, you've got to go. You've got to get them somewhere else. And every single time, sin fails to deliver. Anybody's testimony? Yes. I have everything. Have failed to deliver. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, just mud pits that cannot hold water. Listen to the Lord. He says, From me comes your fruit. The Bible says that every good gift. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Your heart needs to hear this. There is no other source of good. Go home and read the screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis says this so well. As, as the devils are speaking to each other, and they're speaking of, of pleasure. And he says, let me remind you, devil... We, we, the devils, the demons, our Father has invented none of them. God has invented every good thing. There's nothing good to be found apart from Him. It's very interesting to me that this is the theme that He uses to kick off the book of Hosea. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Didalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. We'll see this more, and I wish I had more time to go into this. For yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. We don't have time to go into details. I'll leave it for your homework. But in 2 Kings 9-10, through 10, at a place called Jezreel, there was a man named Jehu that was God's instrument to end the reign of a king, a wicked king named Ahab. And, and he did, and he... He did the right thing. But as the Bible records a story, 
But what we see is that, is that he did the right thing, but he used cruel and, and horrific deception and over-the-top violence to do it. And so the summary of his life in the book of 2 Kings is this. He accomplished what God commissioned him to do, but, and I quote, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord and the God of Israel with all his heart. He did, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Now you have to go back to 1 Kings and read about this first Jeroboam, which, which is, is helpful to do. But, but you put it this way. When God really wanted to say, somebody's really, really bad, He says they were like Jeroboam. So here's what He's saying. Israel is not being punished for what Jehu did generations before that. Israel is being punished for continuing to carry on this legacy of violence and idolatry that Jehu was famous for. So here's the problem. Jehu, instead of following God, just like them, these people are filled with desires and they're looking to other gods and other nations and all kinds of sins and violence to get it for them. Now, that's the problem in Israel. Now, here's my question. If you put yourself in God's shoes, here's my question for you. What would you do? At this point, what do you expect God to do. But let's just be reminded, just so we're clear, what, what all is happening in, in Hosea's day? Describe the culture, the political situation, the social situation in, in the culture of his day. Irreverent. What else? Self-centered. Deplorable unloyal, sick. This is what's happening. And, and it's such a big deal that, that how does God describe it? Shameful. Like a wife who's constantly going out to other lovers on her husband. But Israel's not cheated on a flawed human spouse. Cheated on God, who's been patient and strong and kind and gentle and generous, literally provided everything good that they've ever enjoyed. And so here's my question What do you expect God to do to this wife of His who's playing the harlot? What would you do? I hope that God opens our eyes to be amazed this morning. Let me show you the promise that God makes to this shameful, guilty, whoring people. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She, can, she who can see them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up, up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. Then, they will, then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. I think the therefore in verse 6 is the most amazing word I have read in a very long time. Israel, you played the harlot. 
You've acted shamefully. You've spent your life chasing other lovers. Therefore, in response, I'm going to bring you back to me. I read verse 7 and I say, this is my testimony. That God loved me so much that he, that, he, that he let my sin just continually disappoint me. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lover so that she forgot about me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. My people are getting all dressed up to worship the detestable God Baal. She's forgotten me to follow her lovers. Therefore, verse 13, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Look at verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Nor we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. And I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. How do you explain that? <laughs> this is what the Bible calls grace. And it ought to blow our minds. Like we, we can't spend time going into the details of application. We've covered a lot of ground already. But this, it's this kind of grace as to drive our relationship. It's this kind of grace, us drinking of this grace, you waking up in the morning and, and, and reminding yourself that you, that you are a recipient of this kind of grace and then lavishing it on other people. Lavish, stubborn grace that, that doesn't merely pretend. And when you see this grace is not, is not a kind of grace that, that just pretends and all this shameful chasing after other lovers is no big deal. It's more amazing than that. This is the kind of grace. This, this grace is, is a love that acknowledges every wrong. It feels the pain of every betrayal. It stores up and then holds back like a massive dam the, the, the weight of the wrath that ought to be poured out and doesn't just forget about it, but pours it out on his son. That's what he means in chapter 7, verse 13, when God says, I would redeem them. That's what the Bible means in Romans 3, 21 through 26, and what may be the six most important verses in the whole Bible, that God presented Jesus publicly 
as a sacrifice for sin in order, the Bible says, to demonstrate his righteousness. And here's the question. Why would God's righteousness, why would his fairness, why would his justice be being called into question? And the answer is for promises like this to wicked people like Israel. God feels the need to publicly defend his righteousness because the Bible says he, had had to, he has to show so much restraint in letting the sins of the past go unpunished. But Romans 3 is very clear that they weren't forgotten. They weren't just erased. They were absorbed by Jesus who was punished for every single sin of every person who would ever turn from their sin and trust in Him. That's a promise for the people of Hosea's day. And it's a promise for you. God knows everything you've done. He knows everything you've thought. He knows everything that you've desired. He knows everything you would have done if you weren't so scared of getting caught. He knows. He knows every time you lie, all your lust, every time you're selfish, every time you're proud, every time you resist Him, every time you've forsaken Him. He knows right now that thing that you're holding on to and you're kind of protecting and you're hoping that He'll kind of keep His eyes off of it and let you do whatever you want to do with it. He knows it. He knows it all. In Jesus Christ, He's offering you complete forgiveness. And on top of that, He promises to love you. To protect you. To defend you. To turn all of your enemies who want to destroy you into your eternal good. And so here's the question. Why would you rebel against a God like that? I, you may not want to admit it, but you have to admit it. The only reason for rebelling against a God that kind and that gracious, that generous, is that you're ungrateful. You've forgotten everything that He's done for you. You're proud. Because well, I'm going to do what I want to do. You're self-willed. Listen to the offer again. Of Hosea 14, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously and I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. I'm going to show you what may be the saddest line in this whole book. Look over to Hosea chapter 7, verse 13. God says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart. Here's the rest of the story. Israel didn't listen. Hosea was a preacher who was preaching this message to Israel. And Israel refused to listen. 
They didn't repent. They didn't return. And they were destroyed. In 721 B.C., Israel was conquered by Assyria, the same wicked nation that they had gone to for security. They were destroyed by them, which leaves us with a very pressing question. The, the fact that Israel continued in their rebellion and received the punishment for which this book is warning proves that this book wasn't ultimately written for them. Judah listened for a little while, southern kingdom, but 135 years later in 586 B.C., they fell to the nation of Babylon, were taken into exile, which proves that the promises weren't ultimately made for that generation either. The promises of Hosea and the offer of grace is being made to you. And think about this picture that God is using in the book of Hosea. This picture of, of Hosea and Gomer, his wife. You tell me, who does Hosea, the long-suffering, gracious husband, represent? God. Therefore, who does Gomer represent? Somebody say me. Here's the message of the book of Hosea for Christians. If you're in Christ, that, that you are the adulterating whore who God has graciously allured back to Himself and spoken kindly to, forgiven, washed, Cherished. If you're not in Christ, here's my prayer for you that the message of this book would haunt you and keep, and keep probing you with this question. Look at Israel. Look at Judah. Are you, are you going to end up just like them? Why die? Why go to hell? Why be separated from the source of all love and goodness? The Bible says, I don't take any... God says, I'm not taking any pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and be saved. What is it? It's keeping you from turning back to God and being saved. But not just being saved, let me remind you, being loved. Being forgiven, being washed, being cherished. If you are refusing, it's only because you are arrogant, ungrateful, proud, and self-willed. And here's what I think it'd say. Go after your lovers. You better pray. And when you're done and they leave you empty, there's still an offer of grace. Here's what the Bible says. Don't take that offer for granted. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to use this book like a mirror and say, I've been a whore. My gracious husband is offering to take me back.
come back. This isn't merely questions. I'll end with this. This isn't questions for us to just ask one time when coming to faith in Christ. Let me, let me press on you. This is the question every single time we are tempted to sin. Why would I leave this God? Why would I run after another lover? He's been so kind, so generous, so patient with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we live in a culture that has taught us to expect affirmation and to interpret affirmation as love and love as affirmation. Father, we, we want to confess that we are thankful that you love us enough when we're wrong not to affirm us but to call us out of that. Father, we've been taught by this culture to think the best of ourselves. And here you look us in the face and call us whores. Father, I know what I feel like whenever somebody confronts me with sin, how I want to defend myself. Father in heaven, I pray that you would break through all of that today. Lord, that we would see who we are and we would see who you are. And instead of fighting you, I pray today that we would trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.